Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Where's Wally, the fantastic journey? And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. The very finest video games. And we're discussing our all-time top 100 video games. This week we have our number 64s, but before we do that... Do you, uh, do you guys fancy watching a classic 80s movie starring Tom Cruise? Yes, please. I'd love to. Well, uh, why don't we watch and play an entitled shithead student coming of age, sliding through his parents' house in his pants to the moody soundtrack of Tangerine Dream in Risky Quizness. <laughs> oh. I haven't seen many Tom Cruise films. So I was like, how, how, how's Top Gun going to fit into Honestly, this? I was thinking the same thing and going, is this big? Where's the pun in big? Where's Tom Cruise in big? That's oh, Tom t- Hanks. <laughs> Deary me. The score is currently 17-16 in favour of Chris. So let's see if Minty can pull it level in this question. What two games comprise the portmanteau, Metroidvania... Metroid and Castlevania. <laughs> Straight in there. There we go. The score is 17 all. Oh, I can't believe it's level again. So we have had a question come in from the social media sphere. Lovely. CJ Anderson from the Push to Plat podcast has asked us, what are your feelings towards in-game achievements or trophies? Do you think they add or detract to a game? Do you care? I am, I suppose you could say like a reformed achievement hunter. For the best part of the the 360 era, I, I played games exclusively for achievements, and that's basically all I did. And I'd often play like absolute garbage over decent games, just because they were like quick achievement points. Yeah. And it meant for that whole generation, essentially, I, I didn't really make any time for games on other platforms or good games. Yeah, exactly. I spend far more time now actually trying to play things I will enjoy or think will be interesting or, or whatever. And it it wasn't really until like after I graduated. I don't know if I even, I even told you this story before. When I first moved home, I. Moved in with someone for a little while and then got robbed almost immediately, like the first couple of weeks of living there, and had all my games consoles and my laptop and my camera and everything taken in one hit. And it meant I had nothing to play. Wow. And all I had was an, an old PlayStation 2. Yeah. So I, I was just playing like bits and pieces I could find cheap in shops for, for that. And I think that was what actually kind of like broke the cycle for me that... I stopped treating games as just being like a grind for something to do and started just playing stuff that I thought, well, you know, that looks a bit quirky and interesting. And that's basically what I've done ever since. And these days, I think I'd say I have a far healthier relationship with games. Yeah. And I do still play a lot of shit, but at least it's shit. I'm playing through choice rather than obligation. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's nice sometimes. I have little periods where I might play games to grab a few PlayStation trophies or or something similar. And it does help give you a bit of a push to to finish games sometimes. Yeah. It's it's not like at the forefront of my mind like it was for for that period of time. Until I think I got a PlayStation, I never had a console that had achievements or trophies for the games. So... It was never really a massive thing for me, but I I know that I probably would have been the same as you, Chris, yeah. if I hadn't. I mean, it's partly having OCD, <laughs> actual OCD, yeah. not like, oh, I'm a little bit OCD. No, I've got OCD. I know that that would, if, if I started getting into doing that, that would be my only focus probably going forward. And yeah. I've kind of actively not engaged with them on PlayStation games for that reason, just because I know that I just get, oh, it's all I care about probably. Yeah. But I do actually think they are a nice thing to have. 
and it is a nice way of finding extra little things in the games and finding different ways of playing the game sometimes and making sure you get the full experience yeah. out of whatever it is you're playing I think one of the things that is really nice is when, because I know there's quite a few emulators that are like linked into trophy achievements for like retro games and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's really, really cool because that's a fresh way of playing something that you probably know inside out. And, uh, and that's quite nice. You know, some games have collection pages. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like Xenoblade, for example. Yes. And you, you find the Whispering Clam or the, uh, the Electric Rabbit the half cactus sad bernard sad bernard yes <laughs> yes and they fill up a page in your encyclopedia it's just another way of quantifying your progress in the game isn't it in a way that yeah. is not not quite tangible but recognized because if, if the, like, the, the trophy achievements were in in the game then i'd happily do it but if it's just achievements for achievement's sake i think i'm just just not bothered mm. well thank you for that cj if anybody else wants us to uh, discuss a question or a topic, then please do feel free to get in touch and listen out for details on how to do that at the end of the episode. As for us, champs, what have we been playing this week? I'll tell you what I've been playing this week. Uh, encouraged by your 66th favourite video game of all time, Chris, I decided to play through Katamari Damacy Reroll on the Switch. And I hope you're going to say you enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a great time. I had a really, really good, good time. Good. And so they've got different control setups in the game that you can choose from because that's what I'd said before would yeah. kind of stop me from playing them before as the weird tank controls. And even though it's still not as intuitive as it probably could be in terms of ease of use and stuff i i think it kind it does kind of work in its favor because when you've got this ridiculous mass of stuff and it's all kind of lopsided because you've accidentally picked up like a bench on one side and you haven't got enough turnips on the other side to balance it out and everything it's all a bit weird and clunky to move and when you sort of got too much stuff and you can't quite maneuver through a gap it kind of feels right because it does kind of feel like you are being weighed down by this consumerist orb yeah so i didn't mind too much but um yeah it was really good fun i was a bit disappointed that i think it must have been in one of the sequels because it seemed to cap out in terms of how big you could get yeah quite small well, i say quite small like i was i could still see the curvature of the earth but i really <laughs> wanted to i wanted to roll up the earth i wanted to roll up the king i think that might have only come with the 361 that i played beautiful katamari yeah i think that's when you you got off the planet but it was still uh, it was still really good fun to to roll up some islands and uh, it's i mean it's just a really satisfying concept and it it's yeah, great just to yeah. go from being the size of a pin to being the size of um well a planet it's wonderful great fun Mincy what have you been playing in this last week well I'd be happy to tell you once I remember (laughs) (laughs) I downloaded a few demos when I was on holiday like little puzzly things and mostly they were little crappy word games but I also played uh, box boy and box girl oh that's lovely yeah that was nice did you play it with Catherine no, she was reading a book at the time, you see. So it's more like Box Boy and Book Girl. <laughs> yeah, and she didn't even enjoy the book that much. Oh. I also played a, a word game that was a mashup between a crossword and Minesweeper. What's this? This sounds amazing. What is it? I want it. <laughs> Why haven't you mentioned this before? Well, because you never asked. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. but So it's like a crossword grid. And you know how some crossword grids have like the black spaces in between the words so you know where the words go 
Yes. Well, in those black spaces, if, if you were playing Minesweeper, for example, they would have numbers to tell you where the mines are. They would, wouldn't they? But each square had a selection of letters. Interesting. So if you had to play the word water and it was, and it was down, the top black square would be W and A. And then that would signify that you had to put W and A in those two. And the one below it would be W-A-T. What's the game called? I don't know. Oh, Minty. <laughs> the only thing I remember about it is the developer, their logo is green and it's a dog's face. Well, there you go. Research time. This is Word Sweeper. On the Switch, it's called Word Sweeper by Palgi. That's it then. Yes. Well done, Chris. I'm also four weeks into my first This War of Mine campaign. I would be lying if I said I was enjoying it in the traditional sense of enjoying a game. But it's it's rewarding and very sensitive to the subject matter, I think. Oh, yeah. it's, it's It really is a perfect representation of what people would go through in besieged cities. As you would know, having grown up in Croydon. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Chris, what have you been playing this week? I've been playing Tetris 99. <laughs> Since the uh, Nintendo Direct, they, they added a bunch more stuff. And I'd, I'd kind of tapped out for a little while. I hadn't played it for the last couple of months. But they've now introduced a new mode you can only play if you've won a game previously. So it's it's all kind of the, the big dogs. And I haven't won one of these yet. I am trying, but it's it's much harder. And it's, it's added a sort of progression system as well where you, you unlock new avatars for, for your name like when you come up on the leaderboards at the end of a match which are linked to kind of different feats and things you've achieved in the different game modes. So it kind of encourages you to kind of play across the game rather than just obsessively hit the uh, Tetris 99 mode like I was doing before. And I've also played a bit more of Collection of Manana. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm very close to the end of Final Fantasy Adventure now. Still really enjoying it even if one or two of the puzzles have been quite oblique as you get towards the end game. And it's very much kind of a relic of that Nintendo helpline at 50 pence a minute age that we would have grown up with when the Game Boy was in its prime. So oh, wow. yeah, it's still really good, but it, it just has the, a couple of little, little roadblocks along the way that's taken a bit of time to get through. So enough of that. Moving on to the rankings. Minty, can you tell us what your 64th favourite video game is, please? Yes, Is I it can. a Nintendo 64 game? It's not. That's a shame. It's a Nintendo game, though. So, you know, when you get a thing... I'm with you. <laughs> right. Let's, f- for, for the sake of this argument, let's say uh, you go to... What's the game? <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you go to the supermarket and you pick up a brand new kitchen knife. And you're like, oh, great. I can, I can use this knife for all sorts of things. And I'll use it many times throughout my life. Right? Yeah. That's great. I love that idea of being able to use something many times for many different things and with many different applications. Compare that to a one of those things that you press down on an apple and it and it splits into eight segments. Not a big fan of that because that's the only thing that you can really use it for. And this is something which has in my opinion made this game the most okayest <laughs> in its excellent series. The game also had a really lovely, bleak and very sad atmosphere to it without being sort of overbearingly morose. It's uh, it's Twilight Princess. Oh. Zelda Twilight Princess. That's a fantastic game. It's a great game. Like it has a, it has a really nice atmosphere to it. 
The point I'm making is you would get dungeon items and you would only use them in that dungeon. Like the spinner. It's true. You would only use it in the Arbiter Grounds and to bring up the portal to the mirror of twilight at the top of the arbiter's grounds and then you wouldn't use it again yes you wouldn't really use the gale boomerang that much unless you were doing those mad gale boomerang puzzles which were only really in one dungeon where you yeah. got the gale boomerang yeah referencing a, an earlier game linked to the past let's say mm. it had lots lots more items but you did use them constantly on a, on, a, on a rotation to solve the puzzles. Yeah. Instead of just saying, this is the dungeon where you get this item, so you use this item to kill the boss and get to the boss, and then that's it. Yeah. I didn't really like the fight with Ganondorf at the end, but what I did like was how he died. Oh. I thought that was quite cinematic. Mm. You got the finishing blow from that yellow wolfy fella. Do you remember him? I remember and he's just there like, <gasps> it turns into a skeleton. These things happen. Yeah. Yeah. You hit him with the with the finishing blow. You plunge your sword into him and it just cut to like a profile of him like screaming, but it, it was deadly silent. Yeah. And it just faded in. And then he stood up. He said something Ganondorf-y, maybe like, Triforce. And then he just died standing on his feet. There was no um, no fanfare. It was just... Simply the end. Simply the end for this, this Ganondorf body. For as we know, the struggle between the entity Ganon and the hero of Hyrule is eternal and cyclical. I didn't like the ugly children in it, though. <laughs> there were some very ugly very children. Very ugly children. <laughs> but there was a lovely cat. Lots of lovely cats. Mm. And lovely dogs as yeah. well. And there was the Yeti as well. There was. He was, he was my favourite. You got to cook a soup to help his ailing wife. Yeah. Yeah, and she ended up having a crazy face. Oh, you hate to see it. But then uh, at the end, he was like, you don't need the mirror of twilight. Look into the eyes of Yeto. Look at your reflection. There true beauty and then you got the heart piece you did in many ways hmm. in many ways and twilight princess features possibly my favorite zelda character which is midna oh love that character my main uh, understanding of twilight princess comes from the themed levels in hyrule warriors yes yeah it's about us pretty spot on yeah lots of twilight and some wolfing well thank you for that minty thank you Moving on, Chris, can you tell us about your 64th favourite video game? Is it a Nintendo 64 game? It's not, I'm sorry. What a shame, what a shame. It's a game on the Sega Mega Drive. I mean, <laughs> you... But this is uh, the last stop we're going to have here for a while. This is the last Mega Drive game for a, for a little chunk of the list. Ooh. So in the past, I've talked about Rocket Knight quite recently. Going back, I talked about Dynamite Heady. But I think this game is the real daddy of, of Mega Drive action games. Interesting. And that is Treasure's truly superlative Gunstar Heroes. Ah, it's yes. an absolute ripper. Cool. It really is. Most people kind of know of it, at least, if, even if you haven't really played it. And it's a side-scrolling run-and-gun platformer. I guess you describe it as like an action platformer. I mean, except when it's a vertically scrolling run-and-gun one instead of side-scrolling. Or when it's a shoot-em-up. Or when it's a boss rush. Or when it's a weird board game, which I'll, I'll come to a little bit later. But it, it's a very varied experience. What Treasure did really well back in the Mega Drive era was made these games, like I said, with Dynamite Heady before, that were always kind of subverting what you expected taking what you assumed was going to happen in games of that era and just twisting it in a little way. So it's, it's really nice in that respect. Playing these sort of games like 
platform games, the feel of getting around is the most important bit. Oh, yeah. And I think Gunstar Heroes is, is really fast-paced. The action is always really, really fluid. But it adds like a couple of things to your moveset that just expands how you get about. So similar to when I said like Rocket Knight had the, the jetpack to kind of traverse bigger spaces. Or Dynamite Head, he can do little bits and pieces with his like expandable head going back to that as well. In Gunstar, you, you've got like a little slide kick along the floor and a kind of air dive that if you jump and then jump again in the air, you sort of leap forwards. And both these things are used for both combat and traversal. And it, it just gives you like enough of a sort of palette of options to get about that it's, it's just really fun to move through each level but it's it's the weapons that are kind of the star of the game and it uses a really unconventional setup for how you pick and use your weapons so you, you have four standard types of weapons you've got a force weapon which is like a rapid fire machine gun type thing uh, you've got a laser weapon which is like a slow but powerful beam that sort of cuts through enemies as opposed to like stopping when it hits them you've got a weapon that's called chase which is like a, a homing attack essentially and then you've got flame which is like a close range fiery weapon but what makes it more unique than just saying okay there's there's different guns is that every one of those weapon types can be combined with any of the others to make sort of a hybrid weapon so you get like a homing flamethrower or a rapid fire laser or all different things that again just gives you more choice as to how you're going to approach each stage and for a game that came out in the early 90s, I think there's a real depth to kind of this weapon choice that you might take for granted in modern games, like where you're crafting weapons all the time or you're sticking bits and pieces together to, to alter how a gun fires or something like that. But in a 2D 16-bit action platform, I think it's, it's quite different. And it manages to make kind of every stage have like an element of strategy when you're sort of choosing what power-ups you actually want to take through and, and how you're going to tackle different enemies and bosses. As with most treasure-developed games it's really full on like the action is really full on from the start and it's punctuated by a huge number of creative like one-off bosses that always push the hardware to kind of insane levels so there's there's a boss that's made up entirely of like faux polygonal cubes that sort of spiral around each other to, to give the impression of 3d there's a boss on one stage that's made out of like lumpy curry and rice there's a, a boss that's made out of huge like component sprite parts that reorder themselves into one of seven potential forms so like each playthrough you, you're getting different versions of that boss and then there's the aforementioned board game stage and its associated boss. To give like proper context for, for Treasure, for anyone that doesn't know about the developer, it's a studio that, that started out of like ex-Konami employees, so they splintered off in like the early 90s to, to go their own way. And I think if ever there was a game that showcased the team not being under like the rule of, of like higher-ups, essentially, to just be let loose and, and really sort of throw ideas into the mix and just do things for a laugh and see how it turned out, I think Gunstar Heroes is, is that. And I mean, nowadays we've got teams like Platinum Games. They're probably the closest studio we have these days to Treasure in that they, they make really excellent action games like Bayonetta or Wonderful 101. But at the same time, they, they take on kind of licensed IPs like they did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game a couple of years back and Transformers. And it kind of just keeps them ticking so they can do their own stuff. And Treasure would do very similar. So they made like Tiny Toons games. They made a McDonald's tie-in game. And it arguably, I think, would fund the stuff they would do like Gunstar Heroes and the better stuff. So the quirky things could exist because of McDonald's Treasureland Adventure, <laughs> which came out on the Mega Drive as well, like uh, around the same time. So back, back to our board game. In the fourth stage of the game, you reach a point where you're, you're like trapped in a room that you can't get in and out of. There's no doors anymore. And on the back wall behind you is like the spaces of a, a board game and you have a massive 3D dice that's presented in front of you. And you pick up and chuck it using kind of the, your player moves. Or you can take turns launching it if you're playing in, in two-player, because it is a co-op game as well. But then the dice itself, the, the rolls will determine which stage you land on, or which challenge, or which boss. 
and all of these different stages are, are unique ones for for this part of the game like you don't see them anywhere else so outside of, of this stage these gimmicks or bosses or challenges or whatever are not reused and in the same way like i said like the the seven form boss earlier that you get a different version of every time you play as like a casual playthrough you're, you're not going to see everything this game has to offer because naturally if, you, if you're working with the the chance of rolling a dice you, you're going to land on different spaces each time it's that type of weird set piece that i think exemplifies all of their best work from that time and it's, it's the type of playful creativity that I think was actually lost a little bit when they started making games like Ikaruga and stuff like that later. Yeah. That even though they, they were received really, really well, and they're not bad games by any, by any metric, but they're not as quirky and exciting and odd as some of their early 16-bit and, and other kind of like uh, 32-bit stuff. They're just a great studio. I, I could put lots of their stuff on this list, and I'm sure some of the things I haven't really played could have made it on here if I had more of experience with them. But what they also do really nicely, and this is probably the last thing I'm going to say about this game, is the music in Gunstar Heroes is insane. And it's it's one of those scores that I still listen to just outside of playing the game these days because it's it's a Mega Drive score, so it's obviously like the Mega Drive synth and everything, but it's basically just progressive metal. So it's, it's all kind of like screaming synth leads. There's weird time signatures in all the tracks. There's lots of like intense double bass led percussion. And it's, there's almost nothing else like it on the Mega Drive. It's very, very different and it really makes the whole experience stand out because it's so full-on just like the game itself yeah and i mean like the music there's there's nothing else really like gunstar heroes and i think it's one of the mega drives probably very best like run and gun platform games it's really interesting that it still manages to stand out in a crowd of probably hundreds of these games from that era because they were very in vogue it sits on top of the pile it's it's really one of the very best and like i said it's it's one of the higher mega drive games on this list and we'll have a a brief sojourn into some other platforms for a little while until we come back in future weeks lovely lovely just found out that m2 were responsible for porting it to the game gear yes yeah the game gear version as well like an 8-bit version of it actually holds up incredibly well really yeah if if you watch just like a youtube clip of the two side by side obviously there's compromises because it's essentially running on a master system but given the the screen resolution and the hardware it it still plays quite accurately and the six double a batteries (laughs) you've got about an hour out of that as well so you probably wouldn't even be long enough to finish the game Well, there we are. Thank you for another treasure from uh, your list. I know, sorry. (laughs) So lastly, we have my game. This game is a sequel to a game that has already appeared in my list. One that has appeared quite recently, in fact. Now, it's a rare thing for a sequel to appear in this particular game series, but it's a gamble that has paid off before, and it's paid off with this one, in my opinion, which is a Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds. Oh, oh. Link Between Worlds. Yeah. Two, two Zeldas today. I know. A Link Between Games. I love this game. Now, I talked about A Link to the Past a few weeks ago, and about how, because I didn't get to enjoy the game in the 90s, a lot of its quality and innovation kind of passed me by. But with Nintendo returning to proper, top-down, non-exclusively touchscreen-controlled Zelda for the first time in almost 10 years since the Minish Cap on the Game Boy Advance, I was really excited to see what they were going to do, factoring in everything they'd learned from developing a whole swathe of obviously phenomenal 3D Zelda games in the meantime, and a, a whole smattering of amazing 2D ones as well. And... Joking about them aside, I did really, really enjoy Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks on the DS, and Nintendo definitely proved that you could do an entire Zelda game controlled on the touchscreen. 
but it still wasn't as good as just controlling it normally. <laughs> so I was excited to see top-down Zelda games returning, you know, properly with this. I think certainly after the success of the Ocarina of Time 3D port on the 3DS, it would have been very easy for Nintendo to have just developed a brand new 3D Zelda game for the 3DS, given that obviously they proved the console could definitely handle it. Also, they could have just churned out Majora's Mask port straight away to go with it, which obviously they did end up doing, but, you know, a few years later. But Nintendo decided instead to take a bit of a gamble and openly return to the most celebrated 2D Zelda game of their oeuvre for what they said was a direct sequel. And it was a risky move. They didn't need to... Because all the Zelda games are kind of very similar and built on the same setup and world and all that, they could have very easily just tweaked it a bit and not had it be a cited sequel to A Link to the Past. But so, yeah, it was a bit of a gamble for them to do it because it could have backfired. But however, in typical Nintendo fashion, they weren't just going to churn out the same format of A Link to the Past, despite it being set in the same version of Hyrule, similar story setup. Ganon was probably there being evil and there was a Triforce and a princess in peril and blah, blah, blah. And you also have the dual worlds that A Link to the Past had that Minty absolutely loves, except oh, love them. Ex- famous for it, except this time it was Hyrule and the punnily named Low Rule. <laughs> Oh dear. But fortunately, they had almost 30 years of the series' evolution in its back pocket to shake things up in this world as well. So there's usually a specific gameplay gimmick in the Zelda games that gives them a unique touch. In Wind Waker, you could control the wind. In Twilight Princess, you could turn into a wolf. In Skyward Sword, you could use motion control to whip your sword around. In Minish Cap, you could be all little and that. In Link's Awakening, you were asleep. And in A Link Between Worlds, the new gameplay mechanic saw you transform into a 2D hieroglyph of yourself. Or should I say, a Hyrule glyph. What? What? Hey! <laughs> oh, holy shit! <laughs> a little 2D drawing of yourself that could walk around within the walls, slip through paper-thin cracks to explore the alternate dimension and hidden areas and loads of other cool bits and bobs. But one of the really cool things about this ability was the fact that it really played with the real-life stereoscopic capabilities of the 3DS. So for certain puzzles, you really benefited from being able to view them in actual 3D. And then when you transform into 2D, you lose your perspective on it and the whole setup. It it all just worked really, really nicely together. It was a good mechanic coupled with good hardware capabilities. And yeah, it just worked really, really well. Speaking of the 3D elements, it's actually... It's one of only a few 3DS games I played in its entirety in 3D. Because, I mean, obviously, usually after a while, it would either be annoying or boring or... To be honest, for me, the main thing was you'd realise that the game would run a lot smoother if you turned (laughs) 3D off. But amazingly, A Link Between Worlds stayed silky smooth, 60 frames per second in 3D, and it just looked amazing. Absolutely amazing. There were specific items and weapons and puzzles in the game that Nintendo knew would work really well in stereoscopic 3D. The hammer item in particular would be responsible for helping you smash on switches and trampolines and stuff to help you go up and down between floors in dungeons. And this would look absolutely... I mean, it just looked amazing in proper 3D. It really did look like Link was, you know, sort of even flying out of the, the screen. It was brilliant. I mean, the game was just wonderful to look at. Really, really nice art design, obviously kind of updating the classic design from A Link to the Past. 
and it simultaneously looked perfectly nostalgic but also really really sharp and modern and it was just lovely just lovely compared to link to the past how did you feel about the buoyancy of his hat (laughs) i felt a lot happier about it and i think that's mainly because you could see it wasn't just bouncing on an x and y axis Mm, it was bouncing on a z axis as well and i think sure if you flatten that it's going to look wobblier but when you can see the full depth of it not a problem not a problem great insight thank you one of the things that really set the game apart and was something that Minty has touched upon already today and also something that was quite an important stepping stone, I think, for how things developed in Breath of the Wild. And this was about how you got your equipment and your items and your weapons and stuff. As Minty highlighted, the traditional setup of a Zelda game is you go to the first dungeon, you get a key piece of equipment that would allow you to get to the boss of that dungeon and usually then allow you to traverse some hazard or obstacle in the overworld to get to the next dungeon. And you rinse and repeat eight times, then shove some triangles up Ganon's woofer and the game ends. (laughs) (laughs) It's a classic format. Yeah. But in A Link Between Worlds, you instead had a shop run by a quirky character called Ravio. Ravio. Ravioli. Yep, this filled pastered parcel would simply (laughs) rent you the equipment that you needed to explore the various dungeons and biomes of Hyrule. And this lent a real open world quality to the game that was totally new to the Zelda series. So you could choose which items you wanted to rent. So you could choose then where you wanted to go first and you could end up exploring most of Hyrule before deciding which dungeons you wanted to tackle and you could have a lot of fun just playing with a whole array of items and weapons from the very start of the game rather than having just a sword and then having to tackle the first few hours of the game with a fairly meagre inventory. Another new feature that I really enjoyed was the energy gauge which well, it's all combined magic meters and stamina meters which you've seen sort of in other games so using abilities in certain items would use up energy so that you couldn't just spam a really powerful weapon over and over to blast through a hard room or you couldn't hide indefinitely in walls to just avoid your problems life but my favorite thing is that it also replaced ammo for bows and bombs so you wouldn't need to worry about picking up arrows or extra bombs and stuff like that if you ran out it just needed to be patient yes just needed to be patient which as we all know is the real ammo And this was just a nice sort of quality of life improvement more than anything else. And actually something with bombs came back in Breath of the Wild specifically as well. Yes. And it was all really perfectly balanced. So you couldn't just go and farm rupees for a few hours and then go into Ravio's shop and get the most powerful weapon and then cheese the game. It freed you up so much just to really indulge in those exploratory tendencies and the game also really rewarded you for doing it as well. Even at the very end of the game, I spent several hours hunting for the little uh, Maya Mai snails that were mm. lost all over Hyrule to return them to their mother. But usually with that sort of thing, probably I'd find 80, 90% maybe of them and then would get really annoyed, look at a guide and find the rest. Or I'd just load up a checklist and work my way through it. But with these i just enjoyed looking for them so much that i was never even tempted to look at a guide and it was just exploring and moving around was just really fun and easy in the best possible sense it was just just lovely like i said this is something they very successfully carried over into breath of the wild and it was it's really nice to sort of pinpoint where that origin is in the turning point in the series 
Much like how A Link to the Past had me feeling quite overwhelmed with its breadth, A Link Between Worlds really had that large-scale feel to it as well. And with an adult mind tackling it, rather than my childhood self, I absolutely reveled in its sprawling size and complexity, and also its great story. And I mean, all the Zelda games do pretty much follow the same template in terms of its story and something i pointed out in twilight princess when you've got a great character like say midna in twilight princess it really it does help elevate the story and make certain aspects of it more memorable and for me in this game it was princess hilda of low rule and i just i just really liked the character it was a really Mm. interesting story she had a very distinct personality and you know up until breath of the wild i think princess hilda had more character development than princess zelda had had in the entire series up until that point and yeah that was just really great to see and and like something that's clearly quite memorable seeing as i have remembered it (laughs) well well done it's one of the few 3ds games that i'm really glad i did buy digitally so i know it's always on my 3ds should i wish to return to it and i had actually had a hankering to return to it for quite a few months until nintendo announced the Link's awakening remake on the switch and i think that's just going to scratch that itch instead so i'm holding out but I do hope that I do get around to return to Link Between Worlds and play through it again at some point because it was just a brilliant, brilliant game and one of the 3DS's absolute finest moments and my 64th favourite video game. Well, there we have it. Well, how lovely. So there we have it. We have had another three games in our three cents. First, we had... Twilight Princess. Then we had... Gunstar Heroes. Before finally, A Link Between Worlds. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like and subscribe, share it on social media, leave us a review for crying out loud. Why not? Tell us what you like. If you would like to reach out to us to ask us a question for us to answer on a future episode, you can do that. You can find us on Facebook if you search for Our Three Cents, or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. I am at Minty Boo. And please do join us next week for our 63s. Disclaimer, I was very jet-lagged in this episode. <laughs>